I think theology's for the clergy. I just believe in Jesus. Certain hermeneutics of eschatology demand an exegetical approach. I think you shouldn't question what you were taught in church. Isn't that blasphemy or something? Welcome back to Theology Unplugged. This is Michael Patton. I'm joined by JJ and Sam, and uh, I'm lo- I've lost my partner. He is uh, not joining us here. He's got uh, another engagement that he is involved in. And we were left behind. We were left behind. Hey, nice. We're going to be talking today, continuing to talk about the um, uh, spiritual gifts, specifically the gift of tongues. We ended last week, uh, I think, trying to define and trying to understand the gift of tongues. Um, and we were talking about the Acts passages and... I think we'll just jump right back into that, if that's okay with you guys. Sure. You guys doing okay? We are. Doing wonderful. All right. Your your coffee good, Sam? It is. Good. I'm awake. Um, Gift of tongues. Last time I I presented four different options or four different interpretations that is often out there with the gift of tongues. Uh, Number one was the ability to speak in known languages for the purpose of evangelism. Number two was the evidence of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Number three is the private prayer language. And number four is prophetic utterances of some sort. Now, I want to I continue to kind of break down because what you said last time, Sam, was that you agree with number three, that it's private prayer language, but you don't necessarily agree with number one, two, or four. And last time we talked about how this didn't seem, at least in Acts chapter two, to be a language that you were gifted with for the purpose of evangelism, which is so often the, the uh, default interpretation, especially among cessationists. Uh, I talked about how I agreed with you, but one of the things that was hard for me was that when we're talking about uh, the tongues being an evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit or the gift of the Spirit, really, whenever the Spirit comes upon the people in Acts, sometimes they seem to speak in tongues. Now, is this going to be something, you said last time, Sam, that you don't believe that this is a evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit like classical Pentecostals do. So you distanced yourself from that. Correct. But can it be sometimes a evidence of the filling of the Holy Spirit still, or was that something specific to the book of Acts? Well, I think it probably can in the, in the same sense that maybe the fruit of the Spirit is an evidence of the infilling of the Spirit. Or in Ephesians 5, be filled with the Spirit and speak to one another in psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. And So I think there can be a lot of things that being filled with the Spirit um, will result in, and one of them might be the exercise of a particular spiritual gift, like tongues. Or, for example, um, in the book of Acts, on several occasions it says, and being filled with the Spirit, he spoke forth the gospel boldly. Or in one passage in Acts with Paul, it says, and being filled with the Spirit, he saw that a man had faith to be healed. So certainly the exercise of that gift of discernment or that extraordinary boldness to proclaim the gospel in the face of opposition, we would say was an evidence of them having been filled with the Spirit. So sure, that can be the case with tongues. My point simply is it doesn't have to be. Um, A person can be filled with the Spirit and never speak in tongues for the totality of their earthly life. Mm. so that's the distinction that I would want to draw. And I, I also want to say one other thing on ter- in terms, of, again, of your four categories. I do believe that number one is valid for Acts 2. I believe Acts 2 was 
an instance of people speaking in human languages they had never before learned. I don't think it was primarily evangelistic, but certainly there are Acts two does fall under that that head. And really, it's the evangelistic distinction because whenever you remove the evangelistic purpose of it, then it, it moves it into the category that I think uh, a lot of you, uh, uh, those people who would agree with you guys, would want to keep it in. Whereas the other side would want to keep it in the gift of uh, evangelism type uh, circle. The abs- the absolutizing of, of this common occurrence when when someone receives the spirit, um, I think people hearing this discussion might be misled and think that that the New Testament is maybe a little fuzzy on this or that there's a lack of clarity. But I think really we're de- we're addressing an issue that's developed out of the history of a particular movement where you know Pentecostals have been described as people with an experience in search of a theology, and so when you when you look at Paul's words at the end of First Corinthians twelve. The construction in the Greek is is unmistakable. It's unavoidable. It necessarily follows that the answer is no when he says, do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? No. So it's impossible for us to imagine that this could be an absolutized thing. Paul has gone out of his way to make sure we would not make that mistake. Hmm. And we know that, for example, that not everybody at Corinth spoke in tongues because in 1 Corinthians 14, 5, Paul says, I wish that you all did, Hmm. which indicates that they didn't. Yeah. And I think the reason why he wished it is because it's a good gift and it would put to rest uh, a lot of the disputes among the people because those who had the gift were saying, aha, we're more spiritual than you because you don't have it and I do. And it would, I think, probably Paul envisioned it would put an end to that uh, that kind of one-upsmanship. Hmm. Well, in Acts chapter 10 as well, whenever you have uh, Peter speaking the words to them, the Holy Spirit fell upon them as they were listening to the message um, reading in verse 45 of Acts chapter 10. All circumcised believers who came with Peter were amazed because the gift of the Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles also. For, and here's the amazement, why they were amazed and how they evidenced, how they knew the Spirit had poured up, out upon them. They were hearing them speak with tongues and exalting God. Linking that back to Acts chapter 2, it's really the same thing. I mean, because in Acts chapter 2, they began speaking in tongues, and then the people who heard them says, what are, why are they speaking in our own language and singing praises to God or, or praising God with this? Yeah, and so every time they broke out in tongues, it was a expression of praise to God. And if we don't, again, read this in its significance in biblical history as it's unfolding, we'll miss the almost the ludicrous humor here where Peter says, can anyone withhold water for baptizing this people who have received the Holy Spirit? As though that were even an option that they might think about withholding water for baptism. Mm-hmm. So it just shows how much God was literally having to, to educate them about the, the people of God now being redefined as a multi-ethnic thing. Well, let's talk about then, we say that this is a prayer language primarily, and that's that's how you would put it, right? It's primarily a prayer language. Um, Yes, uh, we might want to refine those terms later on, but certainly I do believe that the primary purpose for tongue speech is prayer. Okay, and... If it and like I said last time, you know, you have unarticulate expressions within humanity already. Um, laughter, crying, both of those are expressions that kind of overwhelm you, and they come out, mm-hmm. and you really most of the time you can't help them because of the emotions that are in you. 
Um, is it the same type of thing, whatever you're talking about, tongues? Because, again, this is something so foreign to me, and I don't know. I mean, it's not as if I can say, okay, I want to learn how. You know, let me go take a class on speaking in tongues or 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 something. It just seems like it's something that would come upon you, right? Is it? Right. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we didn't talk about this in the previous session. I do not believe that tongues is inarticulate expressions. I do. Be- I believe that all legitimate tongues speech is linguistic and substantive. I believe it has cognitive content. Uh, in other words, it's not, as some would rather um, derisively say, gibberish. I believe that what we are reading about in the New Testament is the Holy Spirit enabling an individual to articulate in linguistic form a an expression of prayer or praise to God that that individual himself or herself does not understand. So I believe that all tongue speech has linguistic form. It's language. It might be, as in Acts 2, the language of some earthly people group, heretofore never, uh, not, not learned, but I think that's an exception. I don't think that's the, the primary expression of tongues, especially in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. I think it is a linguistic, articulate expression, unintelligible to the person who is speaking and to others, unless the Spirit of God enables somebody to interpret. Mm. So the idea that tongues, if I can take off, Michael, on your uh, reference to laughter and uh, crying. I mean, those would be two. What else did you get? That's all. Yeah. Those are, those are not linguistic in nature. There's no cognitive content. And what I mean by cognitive content is if there were interpretation, there would be propositional truths. There would be intelligible utterances found within it. When, when you laugh, you're not communicating anything other than the fact that we say, oh, he's obviously pleased or tickled by something. Mm-hmm. But when somebody prays in tongues in the way I understand 1 Corinthians to describe this, something is being communicated from the believer to God. It is linguistic. It is cognitive. It is substantive in nature. It's just unintelligible to us. That, so, so that is the... So I would not I would not describe tongues as inarticulate. It now it sounds that way to the listener. If if you heard me pray in private and I was exercising my prayer language, it would sound like gibberish to you. You you would say I I, re- I recognize nothing in that. It doesn't sound like any earthly language I've ever heard. Uh, you, you might even somebody who knows like Edwin, Edwin uh, Yamauchi who knows twenty six languages. He's a great Old Testament professor, mm-hmm. evangelical. And even Yamuchi would say, I, I don't recognize that at all. Well, that wouldn't surprise me in the least because I think there are various kinds or species of tongue speech. And I think in far and away the majority of instances that what has happened is the Spirit of God crafts, if you will, a unique linguistic cap- capability for each individual to assist them in their prayer life. Listen to Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 14. He's so clear about the rational, communicative aspect of of the exercise of this gift. He says in verse 2 of chapter 14, For one who speaks in a tongue speaks not to men but to God. So he is speaking to God. The issue is no one understands him, but he utters mysteries in the Spirit. 
And then he says in verse 10, there are doubtless many different languages in the world and none is without meaning. So again, Paul is this emphasis here on there's meaning, there's communication happening. The issue is, verse 11, if I don't know the meaning of the language, I'll be a foreigner to the speaker and the speaker a foreigner to me. And then in verses 16 and 17. By the way, which is why he always insists on interpretation in the public meeting or otherwise you need to keep your mouth shut. Mm. Excellent. And he's clearest of all in verses 16 and 17. It's it's just so striking. He says in verse 16, Otherwise, if you give thanks with your spirit, how can anyone in the position of an outsider say amen to what? Your thanksgiving when what? He does not know what you are saying. You're saying something. You are communicating thanksgiving to God. The issue is that he doesn't understand it. Verse 17, For you may be giving thanks well enough, but the other person isn't being built up. Well, what I've seen in every single instance that we've talked about thus far is that every time it is described what is going on, it seems to be praise. It seems to be thanksgiving. You know, that is the mm-hmm. that is the issue that is involved here. Um, whenever I mean our inarticulate, and, and I guess inarticulate, I see what you mean by not using that word. What I was trying to express is that this is almost like a, a release. You know, laughter is a release of an emotion. Um, crying is a release of an emotion. Is tongues a release of a spiritual emotion? I, I would say it possibly can be, but in my experience, it rarely is. Mm-hmm. Um, I would, I would have to say that in ninety nine times out of a hundred, when I exercise my prayer language, I don't feel anything extraordinary. It mm-hmm. doesn't feel any different from how I'm feeling right now, talking to you in English. That doesn't mean that there can't be, in certain instances, an emotional dimension. For example, when Paul talks about singing in the Spirit. uh, Well, yeah, let's put it this way. When you attend a church service or you're with other believers and there's a time of corporate worship and you are singing praise to God, my guess is you are feeling something emotionally that you wouldn't necessarily or ordinarily feel if you were just talking and there were no musical accompaniment, right? Most of us would agree to that. So would singing in the Spirit or singing in tongues perhaps entail a depth of intensity, spiritual intensity and emotional expression not true of merely speaking in the Spirit? And the answer to that is probably yes. I, I, I experienced that. But the idea that tongues is ecstatic is utterly unbiblical. The word ecstatic is never once used to describe tongues. The King James Version, I think, has contributed to that um, that understanding. It is not used in the Greek text in the sense of somebody losing consciousness or losing touch with their surroundings or falling to the ground. And that's just simply utterly foreign to the expression of tongues in the New Testament. Paul expects the believer in 1 Corinthians 14 to be in perfect control of their faculties. They can start and speak at will. They can stop speaking at will. So this idea, and again, just part of the problem is that I imagine a lot of our listeners have images in their mind of somebody on TV or some conference they've attended where people who were speaking in tongues seem to have uh, kind of uh, fallen into some sort of trance-like ecstatic state where they fall to the ground and lose touch with their surroundings. That's just simply not biblical. That's not how it is portrayed in the New Testament. It seems like in verse 15 of 1 Corinthians 14, Paul's emphasis in distinguishing this kind of prayer and praise from from what we might consider a more normative kind of prayer and praise is just the distinction between mind and spirit. 
That, and that's how he chooses to talk about it. I pray with my mind as much as I can. Thank the Lord. I also pray with my spirit. I give praise in my mind. I give praise with my spirit. Hmm. Um, I, and I see what you're making. I, I, this is becoming clearer to me. The distinction between articulate and unarticulate in the prof- or in the uh, prayer language that you have, because there are people who would say, "Yes, it's prayer language," but it is an ecstatic utterance that could put you into uh, uh, some type of uh, uh, trance, and uh, you want to stay clear of that. Yeah, because I would just challenge anybody to give me one single instance in the New Testament where that ever occurs. Mm-hmm. And how how could we be expected to follow Paul's commands in verse twenty seven of First Corinthians fourteen, where he says, "If you're going to speak in tongues in the assembly, let there only be." two or at most three and then you have to take turns and then someone has to interpret so if it was this thing that just seized you how could you be so deliberate and following these incredibly explicit commands for how to exercise it and the gift of interpretation is that a, a gift that you have is tongue something that uh, we've talked about occasional gifts or permanent gifts is tongue something that's a permanent gift i think it is uh i, I mean i i want to draw attention to myself here I can pray in tongues um, as easily and as on the spot as I'm talking to you now in English. It's no different from praying in English. It's just another way of praying. Um, so, uh, I'm sorry, I've just lost track. What was the question again? It's about interpretation. No, it's an occasional gift or is oh, it a permanent gift? Permanent. And I was going to say exercise that will. Well, because I, I, I think if you ask most people who believe they have the gift, they would say they can pray at will in mm-hmm. tongues. Now, Having said that, there I've talked with people who have um, indicated that there have been times in worship or in prayer where they felt that they rather spontaneously spoke in tongues and then were unable to do so later, that it might have been a one-time manifestation. I suppose that's possible. I don't know anything in the New Testament that would preclude that, but it's not how I experience the gift, and I don't think see anything in the New Testament that would require us to believe that. So, for example, Cornelius and those in Acts 10 spoke in tongues on that occasion. Now, if we had visited them six months later and said, hey, you know, we heard Peter tell about your all's experience when you received Jesus, are you still exercising that spiritual gift on a regular basis? Hmm. My guess is they would say yes, but it's entirely possible that it might be an occasional or singular experience, but I don't. I, I don't think that's normal. Personally, I think it's. I think it's a resident, permanent gift that can be exercised at the will of the individual. In the same way that your gift of teaching can be exercised at your will. Uh, it's not a spontaneous thing with you. It's permanent. It's residential. What does it do? Does it? You know, whenever we talk about edifying. Uh, what is the edification? I mean, is the edification a personal edification or is it a communal edification? Both. Now, this is a very hard question to answer because Paul doesn't tell us how it edifies us. He just simply says the person who prays in a tongue edifies himself. Mm. Um, and, and we want to ask, well, how does that happen? And, and to be perfectly honest, I don't have a clue. I, I don't know. I, I, I believe that it's the case. I mean, Later, um, J.J.'s read those verses, um, beginning in verse 14, going through down through verse 19, where Paul says, my mind is unfruitful. I don't know what I'm saying when I'm praying in a tongue, 
but my spirit is praying and I'm going to continue to do it. And it's almost as if Paul himself is saying, I don't know how it edifies my spirit or my heart or my mind or builds me up, but I believe that it does. Now, the struggle that evangelicals have with that, and I understand this, I'm an evangelical, is they say, I don't understand how something that isn't immediately cognitive and rational can be edifying. In other words, if I don't understand something, how can it possibly build me up in any meaningful sense? And honestly, my response to them is, I don't know, but the Bible says that it does. Paul says the person who prays in a tongue edifies himself. And he's talking about uninterpreted tongues because he contrasts it with prophecy. And he's now, some would say, well, that's bad that you're edifying yourself. Well, if it is, then everybody listening to this podcast needs to immediately turn it off because you're edifying, you're seeking self-edification by listening to us. We all ought to pursue self-edification, but not as an end in itself. We want to be edified, built up, strengthened, encouraged, deepened in our relationship with the Lord through whatever means so we can be a blessing to others. That's the communal dimension. And and I suppose that's one of the reasons why I see it, or or at least from the outside looking in, and that's so hard for me to do, you know, because I I don't know where to go with it myself and why I'm asking you guys. But uh, whenever I say that it seems to be maybe a release of of an emotion like crying or like uh, laughter, that does edify you. I mean, crying does edify you. It's good for you whenever you need to cry to cry. It's bad for you to hold in those things. And it's as if whenever you do do that, there is a certain type of release. Now, the problem with that obviously is this, that if that is something that is needed like crying and laughter, that it should be for everybody. It should be something that everybody has because then everybody would need that within their spiritual body to to uh, ha- have that type of release to the Lord um, or, or even an elevation in, in um, your worship, uh, however that would play out and so it's that's the reason why i asked that if it does edify how does it edify and you've clearly said you don't know how it edifies in some way that the bible simply never tells us um my praying in tongues is a way of nurturing and nourishing and building up my spirit and in my relationship with the lord i don't know how that happens but Paul says that it does. So do you ever, whenever you're praying, say, no, I should do this in a tongue or I should pray in a tongue just because I haven't done it in a while? I mean, how does it, it, it doesn't overwhelm you. It doesn't overcome you. It's not something that you just break out in and you don't even know it, kind of like you do see sometimes people doing. But it's something that is you're very much in control of and you say, oh, I should stop and pray in a tongue. Why would you do that? Well, I do it simply because... Um, I typically, as most Christians do, come to the end of my mental resources. In other words, I, I, I'm thinking, oh, man, I, I just don't know how to articulate my, my heartfelt passions, Lord. I, I'm praying for somebody who's sick, and I've just run out of words to say, or I'm praying for, uh, I know there are things that, uh, you know, Paul says in Romans 8, we, we know not how to pray. We don't know what to articulate. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm not saying that Romans 8 is necessarily talking about tongues. But all of us acknowledge Romans 8 as truth. We, we come to the end of ourselves, so to speak. We feel hindered or restricted. And we, we, you know, people fumble over their words and say, I just don't know how to put this into words, my, my love for this person or my desire to see this happen. So my approach is, Lord, you know what's in my heart. You know my desires. 
Um, so I'm now going to pray in this gift that you've given me, trusting that I will articulate to you through the power of the Spirit the very things that you want me to bring to the throne of grace. But at that point, it turns into praise. I mean, it turns from praise into specific prayers for someone or just handing it over and saying, now I'm going to pray in a tongue because I've lost the ability to pray for this person or that person or this situation or that situation on my own. Is that still, I mean, whenever we talk about it being praise and acts, and it seems to be praise in 1 Corinthians, is it still praise? Well, it might be. I mean, I think singing in the Spirit is the primary expression of praise in tongues. Uh, again, for people who've never heard it or experienced it, they might say, what in the world are you talking about? Well, it's, it's simply, it's no different from if, you, if we were, you know, here we are sitting in this recording studio, and if all of a sudden I started singing a cappella, the doxology, and you guys joined with me. We we would turn prose into praise, right? Well, I think it's the same thing with tongues. You can be praying in this prayer language and then just simply begin singing it as well, whether with musical accompaniment or not. So I don't know exactly when tongues passes from praise to prayer, from thanksgiving to blessing, um, to intercession, to... Um, Doxology. I'm not aware of that, except when I consciously sing in the spirit. Then I know. But um, you know, I could be going through the course of a day, driving down the street, and praying in tongues, and it could, in fact, uh, really be declarations of the mighty works of God, as we read, for example, in Acts 10. Same for you, JJ. I've never spoken in tongues. I, uh, I've grown up get in that one down. Yeah, I've grown up in charismatic context my whole life. I've seen it exercised in what I believe are biblical ways and ways that uh, are edifying to to those that were present, including myself. Now, I've also seen it misused and misunderstood. I've seen many times where someone has spoken in tongues and then someone else prophesied, whether they were prophesying um, accurately or inaccurately, is uh, whether it was self-aggrandizing or it was actually something they were hearing from the Lord. So there, that's been very typical in charismatic circles where people misunderstand its function, as Paul's being really clear, that it's something going from us to God. It's praise, it's prayer. And so someone will speak in tongues, and then everyone thinks, oh, well, it's time for an interpretation. So Johnny on the spot pops up and, and you know begins to declaim, thus saith the Lord, and everybody thinks he's interpreting for the person who just spoke in tongues. But, of course, if we pay attention to anything Paul's saying here, we would understand even if that prophecy was accurate, it's in a sense in no way connected with the tongue speaking that just took place. So it was not we, are, we are set on distinguishing between tongues and prophecy. Well, we may be. I, I, it's important for people to know in, in the continuationist world, in the, if I could say, the continuum yeah. <laughs> uh, in the continuationist world across the spectrum, there is a debate that does that has been going on forever, probably will continue, and that is whether or not tongues is primarily vertical in its orientation or horizontal. Probably the standard view in most charismatic churches, in my opinion, is incorrect. I, I have issues with them. What they argue is, and we talked about this in the last broadcast briefly. They say that when a somebody is spoken in a tongue and it is interpreted, 99 times out of 100, that interpretation, as J.J. just said, will sound like an exhortation to the people 
or it's a word from God to individuals. God is saying something about his love for you or his purposes or his presence in your midst. I don't want to say that's impossible, but it doesn't seem to me to be consistent with 1 Corinthians 14. Hmm. 1 Corinthians 14, in every instance, it's talking about tongues as a vertically oriented communication to God. It's in the form of prayer. It's in the form of praise. Paul says you're giving thanks to God. You're blessing God. You're declaring the mighty works of God. So I would, I tend to believe that when a tongue is legitimate and its interpretation is legitimate, it's going to sound like the Psalms. You know, so somebody might say, what value is it going to be to the body of Christ if somebody prays in a tongue and another person stands up and interprets it and it's all vertically oriented? And my answer is, well, what value is reading the Psalms? Why would you, why would you read any of the, the praises in the Psalter of the Old Testament? Well, we're tremendously edified and instructed by that. So I think when tongues really operates in a biblical way, the interpretation is going to sound like the Psalms do. It's going to sound like prayer. It's going to sound like praise. It's like when I read David in Psalm 51, and I'm hearing his prayer to God, and I'm incredibly edified by that, as we all are. When tongues and interpretation are functioning properly in the church, that's what it ought to look like. Now, you got to understand, that is very much a minority view. In, in the charismatic world at large, um, they would really take issue with that because it would immediately delegitimize much of what's happening in their corporate worship. And I'm sorry to do that, but I, I'm, I'm just trying to be biblical. They would want to argue that when tongues are interpreted, they become the functional equivalent of prophecy. Well, maybe. It's, it doesn't become prophecy because tongues aren't revelatory. But if you use the word functional, if you say it's the functional equivalent of prophecy, I could probably live with that because what you're telling me is I can understand what is being said and I can be instructed and edified by it. I'm okay with that. Yeah. But I don't believe that interpreted tongues are prophecy. That's my objection. There's nothing in 1 Corinthians 14 that would lead me to believe that. And to help them save their dignity a little bit, some of those prophecies, they may actually have spontaneously had something brought to their mind by the Lord that they may then feel the need to speak forth, which may then be confirmed by someone else's experience and be edifying. The problem is is that two events happening in, uh, you know, in conjunction, we can't then make assumptions about one causing or being directly connected exactly. to the other. Exactly. Mm-hmm. No, well, because otherwise, all you've got here is that you've got the gift of prophecy, prophecy being given to someone, but it has to have a sidekick along with it to be able to make it, you know. And, and so, it's a if it's the equivalent, I mean, what's the big difference? But I do understand what you're saying about because I do see it as being praise, and being praise, you you don't really see that as let me interpret it, and then all of a sudden we've got you know a prophetic word from the Lord. It's it's praise. It's a and again, you, like I said. The, what I've just articulated is very much a minority view in mm-hmm. most charismatic churches, mm-hmm. um, and unfortunately so. But again, I just don't see First Corinthians 14 yielding another interpretation. Okay, one more thing that I've got on my mind at least. Um, whenever they heard them speak in tongues and acts, that seemed to be something that was evident to them, especially whenever they uh, go to Cornelius's house and Peter hears them speak in tongues, and he says it just the same way we did. 
they received the Holy Spirit just like we did and began to speak in tongues. Uh, whenever we see it in Acts chapter 19, it seems to be the same type of thing, and people give praise to God. Possibly, although, you know, I, I don't know where you guys stand with this, but possibly even whenever Peter and John go down and lay their hands upon the Samaritans, and they receive the gift, and Sim, Simon, the magician, sees it and says, you know, uh, Saul, that uh, they received the gift by laying on of hands, the gift of the Spirit by laying on of hands. Possibly that was evidenced, unspoken evidence by tongues, and that's what Simon saw. Otherwise, you kind of ask, what did he see? Did he see the Holy Spirit come inside of them? Something happened to them that made Simon say, wow, I want that gift. How much for it? You know, If it is that, uh, in certain circumstances, uh, and we're saying, we've, we've already discussed that it's not normative. Paul's made it clear not all have the gift of tongues. Therefore, not everybody who receives the Spirit will speak in tongues. JJ, you made that clear. However, how is it that they were able to determine, even Simon the Magician, oh, well, I'm assuming Simon the Magician, but how is it that they were able, able to determine with such uh, conviction as to change their entire theology and say, well, God has come to the Gentiles also, who are we to stand in his way? Um, just because somebody began to speak an unintelligible something. I mean, can't, and maybe you don't have the answer to this, but couldn't I go in and somebody begin to speak in tongues and I say, well, obviously they've got the spirit within them because, you know, how can they speak in tongues otherwise? Whenever I have no clue what a tongues are, and as you said beforehand, you don't know what it is that you're saying whenever you say it. Can it be faked? And I know that, you know, that's that's the big issue. Well, it's, you can, now you're making me think of First John where he says, you know, nobody can testify that Jesus is Lord except by the Spirit of the Lord. So he, it says that they were speaking in tongues, and then it says, and extolling God. So I don't know if that gives us a clue that, you know, these people are not going to be able to give praise to Jesus as the way, the truth, and the life. As, as the word, as the light, unless, unless the Spirit was enabling them to do that. I don't know if that's a clue. Yeah, Michael, I don't know if the, new, if the Bible gives us an answer to your question. Um, we just have to put that on the shelf. and I mean, yeah, I, I, I mean in Acts 8, that's a, the question. It's a very le- legitimate question. Uh, verse 18, it says, Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. We don't know what he saw. The text is simply silent. Maybe he saw exuberant joy. Maybe he saw um, uh, just a almost a transformation in their visage, their demeanor. Um, maybe they were weeping. Maybe, maybe saw there is kind of an all-encompassing term for he heard them, he witnessed them. Maybe they were praising Jesus. Maybe they were uh, demonstrating a, a release from demonic bondage. I, I don't know. The text simply doesn't say. Could it have been, I mean, how do you see tongues anyway? I mean, that you hear tongues. You don't see it. But you might see people speaking in tongues. Bottom line is we don't know what he saw. We don't know what the grounds were on which he drew that conclusion. Now, in Acts 10, evidently, um, there was something so obvious in the way that Cornelius and his household responded to the gospel message. Uh, maybe there are dimensions there that we don't know that simply weren't recorded. For example, just verbal confession of faith in Christ. Uh, the fact that they were extolling God. They started praising the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. These are Gentiles. 
Um, well, here's what I would say is that at that time it seemed to be so unique, and I don't know if other cultures at that time spoke in tongues or if, you know, people were baptized beforehand, so other cultures would baptize, so that would be a normative part of the cultural experience. But whenever you spoke in a tongue, it seems to be something very unique to the Christian confession, to the power of the Spirit, that is not just adopting something from the culture that they already did. You know, anytime you have a religion, you get baptized and you speak in a tongue. No, it's something very unique, it seems, to Christianity. And so that whenever they saw it in Acts chapter 10, the people in Acts chapter 10, you wouldn't think were faking it. You know, like they they heard it and they they wanted to, you know, there's kind of this culture pressure to speak in a tongue. They just started speaking in tongues. And then you're like, wow, all right, they're doing this weird thing that we did as well. And they must have received the Holy Spirit. I can understand that then. But now it's a little bit different because whenever I see it with people, I'm like, well, maybe they're just... You know, doing doing it because they grew up doing it and there's pressure to do it or they took a class on how to do it. I've seen classes on how to speak in tongues and to learn to speak in there's tongues. There's shysters and fakers and manipulators. You know, all you got to do is point, turn your television isn't it, on. Doesn't it become so broadly um, practiced and, and part of the enculturalization of Christianity that it's extremely difficult to tell whether it's legitimate or not? And then, and I'm not saying this to illegitimize the gift at all. I'm, please don't see me going there. But what I'm saying is then, number one, people outside don't know whether you're really speaking in a tongue or not. And we can't really assume that whenever you start to you know, make sounds and, and speak in a language that you, somebody else doesn't know, that they do have the spirit. And number two, the person himself doesn't really know whether it's legitimate maybe, right? Yeah, I, I certainly I think we can be self-deceived. And you're right. It's not, um, we don't know whether or not the exercise of this purported gift by multitudes of people who believe in it are really doing it, whether it's truly spirit-prompted. We don't know. I don't know that there are any criteria given to us um, in the Word of God that would enable us to know. I'm, for example, um, I, I would think that virtually every spiritual gift can be a fabrication on mm-hmm. the part of an unbeliever yeah. or the part yeah. of a believer. Um, so if, if every gift can be counterfeited, which it can, then tongues certainly wouldn't be an exception. It would be part of uh, that potential. Um, you know, just I, I'm just thinking, for example, if I can come back once again to other examples in Acts. Here we have this in Acts 10, where the gospel reaches out to the Gentiles for the first time and the Spirit comes upon them. They speak in tongues. They're extolling God. Then later in Acts 13, let's just take this is just one of many examples where Paul has been preaching to the Jews. They reject him. Uh, Paul and Barnabas say, you know, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, but you cast it aside. You reject it. So we're going to turn to the Gentiles. And then he turns, the Gentiles hear the gospel, and then we read this, that they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. There is nothing there with, about tongues. Here are these massive numbers of Gentiles who now have come to faith in Jesus. They rejoice. They glorify the word of the Lord. But there, Luke didn't feel any urgency to say they all spoke in tongues or none of them spoke in tongues or a few of them spoke in tongues. So my guess is that some of them probably did. Some of them probably didn't. We have many examples of this in Acts. 
the Ethiopian where, eunuch, where Philip leaves Ethiopian right. eunuch, and all it says very explicitly is, and the eunuch went on his way rejoicing <laughs> after he's baptized. And again, when when you read in 1 Corinthians 12 through 14, Paul seems to be portraying the utilization of this gift in the ordinary life of Christians, even in, in his own personal devotions, and in the life of the corporate body, that looks slightly different from how it does in Acts. Hmm. They, I mean, these are it's not evangelistic at all in Corinth. These are all believers um, who are gathered together with other believers. So it's somewhat different from how tongues was utilized in the book of Acts. Uh, I think one of the major problems, and maybe we can talk about this in the next broadcast, is that my cessationist friends tend to take Acts 2 as kind of the template or the paradigm for all tongue speech, and they take it out and they impose it on Acts 10, Acts 19, and even on 1 Corinthians 12 through 14. Mm. And I think that's illegitimate. Yeah. Uh, I think... I think I agree with you. I I do. I I mean, I think that uh, Acts chapter 2 just simply shows a unique use of the gift, but it doesn't show a parallel use that we do find in the other ones, which is uh, praising God in in some articulate fashion. And again, especially if we take Paul's statement that there are various kinds of tongues. Uh, They're the kind of tongues that we find in, in Acts 2, the kind of tongues maybe that were exercised in Acts 10, the kind of tongues that he exercised in his own private prayer life, the kind of tongues that were utilized in uh, the corporate assembly. I still think it's all one singular gift, but it has different functions. It expresses itself in different ways. It might be a variety of different kinds of linguistic forms, whether Russian or, or uh, you know, Swahili or English or some angelic dialect. I think there's a variety of ways in which it can be expressed. Well, Michael, if I might... As we close, take the liberty of, of possibly giving our listeners some homework. Those of you that are processing this, that are asking yourselves, what does it say? What does the text say about this? Is this legitimate? Is there biblical grounds for this? I think one really fun way to approach what the text has to say is to sit down and, and call to mind uh, the ways in which you've seen it abused, maybe your fears and concerns about how to, uh, to validate its veracity. Uh, write those things down on a piece of paper, and then I would say simply go to 1 Corinthians 12 through 14 and look at the incredible anticipation, the way in which Paul warns against its abuses, the clear instructions he gives for its use, and how in every way Paul anticipates the abuses we've seen and violently mitigates against them by giving such incredibly clear instructions for how to use it. So I just, I and, love and do not, do not, God's uh, sufficiency keep people in from speaking in tongues, yes. he says very clearly. All right, guys. Uh, I think uh, this has been this has been very helpful for me. It really has. I mean, this is one of those one of those gifts that is 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 very foreign. Is very much. I don't know. Whenever, whenever you put it that way, it's it's very hard for me to to say that it is a one of those ones that has the same type of bite that the other gifts might have. You know, like prophecy and and healings. Um, but uh, I and let me just say, add this by in closing because. If people then are, after you just said that, and they're saying, well, then why why is it that there's such resistance to the gift of tongues among cessationists? And again, I come back to this point. I believe it is nine times out of ten, it's because they be, believe, based on Acts 2, that every legitimate expression of the spiritual gift of tongues has to be a human language previously unlearned by the speaker. If that is true then 
what I exercise in my prayer life is spurious. And what is happening in charismatic churches universally is illegitimate. If Acts 2 is the defining standard for all tongue speech, then virtually everything that occurs in the charismatic world is false. Hmm. It's fake. It's not, it's not genuine. And so I think that is why there is such resistance on the part of cessationists to what they see happening in charismatic circles is because they're insisting that, that all that is expressed in these churches and in these private prayer lives has to be forced into the mold of Acts 2. And I think that's illegitimate. Hmm. If you can prove that, that Acts 2 is the paradigm, is the standard by which all tongue speech is judged, the cessationists win. So there's, you've got a, maybe you want to jump on that in your, in our future sessions. But I don't think it can be done. So no, no, I, I, I'm with you. I mean, the more I've studied it the last few weeks, I, I you know, I kind of came to the conclusion on my own that because because I'm better on my own and uh, me and the Holy Spirit, you know, without you guys' help, we're able to figure this out. So no, I mean, Acts chapter two just does not seem to be the defining or able to define it in a comprehensive way. Right, I would agree with that. But if it does, the cessationists win. Hmm. At least on the gift of tongues, not on the other gifts necessarily, but on that one they would. All right, guys. I hope you're uh, enjoying this and um, uh, being edified by it, uh, whether through uh, our speech or uh, through your ability to uh, comprehend and understand these things. We're speaking in human languages here, and we will continue to do so. We have never had a broadcast in tongues. (laughs) And this never needed interpretation. (laughs) Have a great day. You've been listening to Theology Unplugged. Visit our iTunes page by searching Theology Unplugged at the iTunes Store. All episodes are available as free downloads. Theology Unplugged is made possible by Reclaiming the Mind Ministries. Reclaiming the Mind Ministries is a listener-supported ministry. If you've enjoyed this session or benefited from it in any way, do consider partnering with us. For information on how to become a ministry partner and for a complete listing of ministry resources, visit the RMM homepage at www.reclaimingthemind.org. Thank you for listening, and God bless.